one of the challenges of topical studies is that you can quickly forget and move on and not have them keep resonating. So hopefully this stirs the pot a little bit on things that God has been teaching us. We need God's wisdom to guide our mouths, to guide our friendships, to humble us and kill our pride that remains, to guide our marriages as we seek to build a home that honors him. Uh, we need his, to heed his wisdom when it comes through human reproof and correction and rebuke. We need his wisdom and his will and his way to guide our parenting. Oh, may he help us there as we seek to build a family. We need his wisdom last week that we talked about to guide our sexual desires so that we flee any and all immorality and impurity and enjoy the one single expression of sexual pleasure that God permits and is designed, a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant and nothing beyond that. So last week, huge issue. Uh, I left a lot unsaid, and as I wrestled with, do I just leave that on the cutting table? I uh, decided that we would take a couple of minutes just for one closing point along with all that we said about God and all that we said about Christ. want to bring in a note about the Holy Spirit as well. So this would be a fifth point to last week's conclusion. And if you ask, what do I do with this? I would say, pay attention. And if you can connect it to last week's, if you're an organized person, great. And if not, hopefully it's powerful in the moment. So just the encouragement to walk in the light with others, that sexual sins are a way in which we walk into the darkness, as Ephesians speaks about, rather than walk as children of light. So one critical thing is daily, hourly walking with the Holy Spirit. And Galatians 5 just tells us that if we walk controlled by him, we will not gratify the desires of our flesh, particularly here in this context that we're talking about, our sexual desires. Galatians 6, a verse that we've said almost every Sunday we've been in Proverbs, the principle that we must never be deceived about is that God will never be mocked in the long run. No matter what fools get away with now and what they do, that whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But notice the next sentence. For the one who sows to his own flesh, in other words, giving in to his sexual temptations and desires, will from the flesh reap corruption. Proverbs' word was death. But the one who sows to the Spirit, walking in him and in his power with his word in us, will from that spirit reap eternal life. So, exhortation. Don't grow weary of doing good, walking in the spirit and fighting every sexual temptation, never wearying of it. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. But also even more, walking not only with the Holy Spirit, but walking with others. Walking with your spouse, if you have one being open and honest and transparent, walking with community, such as the church or close godly friends. Again, sexual sin thrives when it is kept in darkness and privacy and isolation. So if you need to meet with someone for encouragement, to have your head hit by a two-by-four, for accountability... I'm willing, any elder is willing, many, many others in our body are very willing. We have a couple, if you prefer to meet as a couple, a couple who has really worked through this and is very interested and open to meeting with others to try to help them with that battle as well. We need other believers to rightly battle for fidelity. So don't let shame keep you in that darkness fighting it solo. It is such a harder battle. Call in reinforcements and backup. Only God can truly rescue you from sexual sins, but he uses humans also often as part of that. And thus the exhortation of Hebrews 3 that I probably share with you at least 10 times a year. Take care, brother. Be careful, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart 
because of the sexual sin that steals our faith, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort each other every day, every hour if need be, that none, no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and of sexual sin. So today, we're moving into our eighth study topic, and that is what God reveals for wisdom about work and the fact that he cares deeply about this, and particularly or especially that we are not sluggards, which is not a term we use a lot. Sometimes he uses sloth, but the idea of just a lazy person, a person who moves ever so slowly, if at all, and accomplishes ever so little in ever getting anywhere. And while what we'll talk about and many of my references will be about a vocation or what you do during the bulk of your day for a living, as we call it, don't just focus on eight to five, career, promotions, paychecks, salary, possible clocking in. Try and apply these principles of Proverbs to all areas of your life, how you work in your home, whether that's as a husband or as a wife, as parents, uh, as homeowners that God has blessed you with, or how you work within the church, or how you work in the spiritual disciplines to grow spiritually. Think not only of bodily exertion, but of mental effort. Think not only about doing things that you like and love, and that kind of energize you, but also about things that you can't stand to do. Apply this also to when you're paid and when you aren't. Apply these also equally to when others value and appreciate what work you do and when others don't care a lick and don't notice and never encourage. Part of the point is we're not looking just to be fantastic workers in our one job, but foolish and sluggard in other ways. Under the curse, which we'll talk about at the end, man is given to not love work. It's just hard. Mix that with the American culture, which loves and the goal is ease. Everything easier, constantly easier. And you have a recipe for folly. And let's remember, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, five-day work weeks, two to three weeks of vacation, Benefits that come with that, all of those are not in the Bible. They're from the American way of thinking that can really distort God's view of work. Sloth used to be one of the seven deadly sins. Now, as one writer put it, it's often one of the respectable ones in the church. Somebody else said something like, the symbol of Christianity often is not a cross, but a couch. Many of us work not so much for God, if we're honest, but for the money, or for the fame, or for the possessions, or so we can play. We tend to think, as many Americans, the less work we have to do, and the more leisure we have, the better our life is. But that isn't how God sees it. He wisely created us to work, and he cares deeply about what we do, what we work at, how we do it, and why we do it. Or another way of saying it, he cares about our motivation, our attitude, and our effort. I've used this illustration before, uh, so pardon me if it's uh, redundant for you, but Teaching for 26 years, I just saw, and teaching writing English, I just saw students with tremendous writing abilities who could coast and take it easy and get straight A's. And I saw students where it was a struggle to get words on paper and maybe, maybe would get a B minus, C plus, or whatever, some worse. But I couldn't get it through students' heads, most of them, that God cares far more about their motives their attitudes, and their efforts than he does about their GPA, ACT, class rank, degree, or scholarship. But American values tend to dominate in most Christ followers' heads to our loss. 
Now, it's pretty remarkable, I think, jarring, how much God has to say about laziness. Now, when you think of all the things he could have talked about with work and the ethics of it and the dangers of workaholism and the need for rest, that what he zeroed in on, what he said over and over and over, perhaps 40-some times, were that there are some tremendous dangers in being a lazy individual. Now, Chad touched on this a little bit in Ephesians 4.28. When I was listening to that sermon uh, on vacation, it was like, cool, we're going to talk about this in Proverbs as well. So this is a reinforcement, if you were here three weeks ago, to just weigh in again on the working honestly that Ephesians 4.28 calls us to. And it challenges us to wrestle with, is only 100% of me all out the only acceptable standard? Does it always have to be that? I saw a meme that's funny, not funny, recently of, I always give 100% at work. Monday, 11%, Tuesday, 24%. Wednesday, 40, Thursday, 23, Friday, 2%. And it comes out to 100. Or is 120% admirable? Or is that unwise and pushing the body too hard? Is it wise to pace ourselves at, say, 80%? So there's lots of things. Perhaps the biggest life question is how do you balance all of the plates that are spinning all at the same time of work, but also family, church, friendships, rest, home, enjoyment, all of those things. And Proverbs doesn't choose to address a lot of those. Most of all, it gives us a lot of descriptions about sluggards. Not necessarily to say that every one of these fits every single lazy person. I think you'll see yourself at certain times in these, perhaps more than at other times. But <clears throat> Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 charges the church to admonish the idol. Also encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but admonish the idle. So a couple of thoughts along that line. First from Alistair Begg, uh, whose sermon from a couple of decades ago was very uh, instrumental, helpful for me, challenging for me this week. Laziness is not an infirmity. Laziness is a sin. God made us to work. Indeed, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord. And the contemporary quest for leisure feeds on indolence, feeds on a mentality which says, nobody's going to tell me what to do when I work. I will just order my own program. And my desire in life is to reduce this six to as small a number as I can. And I'm certainly not interested in this one day of worship and rest and study and so on. All I want is to have some fun. That's all I want to do. And I'll do it when I want and I'll do it with who I want. And don't anybody talk to me about anything. And if you can hear all that in Alistair Begg's Scottish accent. The Christian is supposed to be radically different from that. And later he says, laziness is a sin. It affects the whole of manhood and womanhood. It has an unperceived power. And it must be rooted out. David Prince, the testimony of the Bible from beginning to end says that laziness is wicked. But we don't often look at it that way. And why is that? Why don't we think laziness is a big deal? Why has laziness become a respectable sin among Christians? For many, laziness is a lifestyle, a worldview. We teach ourselves to think that everyone should want nothing to do if they can make it happen. We romanticize laziness. Our lives reflect a song from the 80s, everybody's working for the weekend. We tend to think that if we didn't have all this work to do, meaningless secular work, then we could really be vibrant Christians. But this way of thinking as of laziness as a worldview, we have come to believe that the reason we work is so that we can rest. Work in this way of thinking is a necessary evil, and that is too often the story we tell ourselves. But thinking in this way turns God's work and rest rhythm completely on its head. Biblically, we do not work so that we can rest. We rest so that we can work. When we do not get this foundational reality right, we draw wrong conclusions about both work and rest. A couple notes to certain demographics within us, and then we'll pray and start. There are people who cannot work due to health, bodily, mental limitations, but this is about people who will not work or will not work sufficiently to meet needs. And certainly, as we age, 
capacity recedes often rapidly. So older brothers and sisters, be realistic about your current capacity, not being too hard on yourself, but beware also of the American mentality of retirement. Parents, this is such an important discipline, not just for running your home well, but to reflect God's joy in working for all of lifetime. And teenagers, college students, those of you in the early stages of working, this is such an important area to be sure your worldview, the way you're looking at it, is biblical and not cultural. There are a lot of bad ditches we can end up in and spend a lot of years in. So, as always, it's easy to think when you hear these, oh, my child needs to hear this, my spouse needs to hear this. But think mostly, what is God saying that I need to hear? Where are areas of my life, perhaps, that I am not working as he intends? And may God help me repent and make real changes and align more with himself. Six days ago, I saw myself as a much harder working man than I do now. So Father, we pray today, as Jesus prayed for us in the garden, that you would sanctify us with truth, with your truth. So please use these wise, living, active words and proverbs of yours that teach us how to live according to your wisdom in ways that please, honor, and glorify you. May your words be sharp where they need to be, pierce deep where they need to pierce, discern our deepest motives, desires, thoughts, and attitudes. All of that as part of your surgery to renew us, remake us, and redeem us. So sanctify us in your truth today, we ask. Amen. So, Normally I have three, four, five subgroupings. Didn't really see that as much this week as I worked my way through. So first mention, I think we'll work mostly chronologically and then bring in others when they work. First mention of sluggard is Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. So if you remember last week we talked about Proverbs 5, 6, 7 are almost in totality about sexual immorality. But in the first half of chapter 6, uh, Solomon deviates from that or whoever put the Proverbs together. And there's a little interlude section in there about a number of other topics. And Proverbs 6.6 6 first addresses sluggard. But I think if we go to Proverbs 24, as you see on the slide, first it makes what's said in Proverbs 6 pop even more. So here's two clusters of thought a long way apart in the book. But when you lay them together, uh, make a lot of sense. So the negative example, first of all in chapter 24 is, I passed by the field of a sluggard by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it, I looked and received instruction. That's how we become wise. And here's a line that's in both of these passages, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And the point is, it just doesn't take very long, but once you start giving in, it often cascades. And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want or neediness like an armed man. Let's note that whenever Proverbs uses poverty, we don't want to only think financially destitute. Certainly, when these were written in Old Testament times 3,000 years ago, this principle often did mean financially destitute. Um, but a lack of money is not the most painful aspect of poverty. And if you read all of the Proverbs about the poor in the book of Proverbs, you would see that not having enough money is very low in their pain of what they suffer. It's the poverty of soul. It's the poverty of relationships. It's the poverty of joy and satisfaction that working produces. It's a impoverished way of living your life the way that God intends. Now Proverbs 6 and the positive exhortation, but ending with the same principle. Go to the ant, O sluggard. There's the first mention. Consider her ways and, once again, be wise. Receive instruction. Learn from this tiny little ant as you watch it and imitate it. 
Here's what's commendable about the ant. Without having any chief officer or rule, no employer, no boss, no manager, no master over them, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest, meaning she does the hard things when they have to be done at the right time, in a timely fashion, when there's only a window of time, because in the end, if not, she will have nothing. And then comes the exhortation. So how long are you going to lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? And the same lines as chapter 24, verses 33 and 34. A sluggard is always thinking he will get around to it soon. But first, something else often fun. Anthony Salvaggio. Unlike us, the ant does not need some form of accountability to make it work faithfully. Nor does the ant need coaching, pep talks, motivational speakers, or a book chapter on the biblical work ethic. And I would add, the ant doesn't need promotions or pay raises. The ant works industriously simply because that is what he was created to do. Sorry, trying to edit on the fly and it's not my strength. A lazy person tends to do the bare minimum to get by, often neglecting, taking the time and the effort and whatever else it might require of him to tend well to things. Even, as we've seen in the two passages so far, when they are instrumental to his survival and his quality of life. If he absolutely doesn't have to do something, he tends toward not doing it or putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. A meme, not a humorous one, a piercing one that Beth and I saw recently, Beth sent to me. Procrastination is the arrogant assumption that God owes, or I would add, will just automatically give grace of another opportunity or more time to do what you are already given time to do. So now we go to one more cluster, and this is in Proverbs 27, 23 to 27, where we get now no mention of a sluggard, but this is really what the diligent do. Know well the condition of, and now you can fill it in. In an agricultural setting, it's your flocks, your, your job, your car, your home, your whatever, relationships. Give attention to your herds, and that attention for a herd is daily, often multiple times in a day. It's not something you should be slack about doing. For riches do not last forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass is gone, the new growth appears, the vegetation of the mountains is gathered. In other words, at the end of the season, if you've been known well and given attention to, the lambs will provide clothing, the goats a price of a field, there'll be enough goat's milk for food and maintenance for your girls. In other words, know what you must give priority to and keep doing it faithfully day in and day out. The rewards are often a long way out, and there are often temptations to compromise in between. All right, now we're going to pick up the pace and just rattle through a number of these proverbs about sluggards, just looking for principles that we can learn from and perhaps instill in our children and our family as well. So we're just going to chapter 10, which is where all those individual proverbs start, and we're just going to start rolling. And there's several just right away in chapter 10. And now these are clustered a little bit on the slides by some commonality of theme. 10.5. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son. Same concept as 6.6, meaning he works when he should, gathers when he should, does all of the things at a timely way when they should be done. But he who sleeps in harvest, even when everything else has been done up to that point, and now comes the rewards, but that process has been so hard, or har harvesting is so hard that the sluggard bails out even there. And that kind of a son is one who brings shame. 24, 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, doesn't do the hardest jobs when he needs to do them to prepare the soil so there will ultimately be a harvest. So he will seek at harvest and have nothing. The wise understand the necessity of the whole process and the need for working diligently and faithfully through all of those things. 
And the ironic thing about sluggards is they may not feel shame, but often the people who care most about them do. Fifth in our little pile of uh, themes, Proverbs 10.26, word picture. Like vinegar to the teeth, you can try that this afternoon if you want. Smoke to the eyes perhaps is a little more uh, relatable for us, but the irritation of that is a sluggard to those who send him, to those for whom he is working. When others are counting on a lazy person, when he really needs to come through and he doesn't, it's a disappointment. It's an irritation, it's angering, it's frustrating, like smoke in the eyes. And once again, those a lazy person affects negatively are often more upset by his laziness than he is. Sixth thought about sluggards, now in chapter 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits, there's another common trait of sluggards, or of lazy people, is chasing these worthless pursuits, lacking sense. Same idea again in chapter 28, near the end of the book, in verses 19 and 20. Verse 20 adds on to this thought, a faithful man, one who works day in, day out, day after day after day, week after week, year after year, fulfilling God's purposes, will abound with blessings, but those who are hasty to get rich who follow these pursuits will not go without feeling punishment for that. And then 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty, get her done as fast as you can or get cut corners to get somewhere, chasing dreams, to the neglect of faithful day-to-day -day work makes one ultimately a starving artist or what other occupation you want to put in there. Seventh thought, 1224. The hand of the diligent will rule, will be rewarded, will often be promoted, will often be entrusted with more. But the slothful will be put to forced labor. It's always about having to make them do something and requiring them toward, to do that and having to go back and check up on them. And obviously, we've all seen the reversal of this, right? The slothful person somehow gets into a position of ruling and then often makes the diligent do the things that the slothful person should be doing. But as a general principle, we know that doesn't work well. It's toxic for a work environment and ultimately will lead to lots of damaging things. Eighth theme about sluggards. 1227. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. And I'm going to skip the second part of that for now. The diligent man will get precious wealth. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. And then almost identical in 26.15, except it says it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Now we have the idea some sluggards can't get started and constantly put it out, push, push it out. But some sluggards start... They get game, they go out, hunt the game down, they get the dish ready, but then the laziness gets in. They fizzle out, they weary, they lose interest, uh, and they just won't complete the task. And before we get too condemning, this is us with half-read books, half-fulfilled promises, half-met goals. Projects at home or at work that have been unfinished for who knows how long. Ninth description of sluggards. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Similarly, in 21, 25, and 26, the desire, the cravings of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but he doesn't get he gets nothing, as the earlier proverb said. But the righteous gives and does not hold back, which should also remind you of Ephesians 4.28 when Chad preached that we work so that we have enough to share with the needy. But the sluggard can't even uh, raise himself up to complete all of his own cravings and longings 
and goals and intentions. So sluggards might sound ambitious, might talk a good game, we'll see that later, but when it comes to actually carrying out, the initiative isn't there. And a good application from Derek Brown here for our spiritual disciplines. The sluggard may desire to grow spiritually, but the disciplines of regular Bible study, prayer, theological and devotional study, church commitment, and consistent gospel relationships are too much for him to bear. Tenth description in Proverbs 15, 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. And now you might think Genesis 3, that the curse meant the soil would be filled with thorns. So these may be imaginary thorns, things that the sluggard perceives. We'll see soon that he's an excuse maker. So maybe he's just uh, saying there are thorns, lying about it, or his way is a hedge of thorns. It's full of thorns because by his choices and by his inattention to faithful, diligent work, he has made life much harder than it needed to be. But the path of the upright is a level highway that the faithful, disciplined, diligent workers ultimately over time level those mountains that are so hard to climb, balance those valleys out, and pave a solid way through life. Eleventh description and almost identical phrasings in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets if I go out there. Or there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. All sorts of excuses come out of the lazy person's mind. Perhaps ones that sound legitimate, not so much the lion one, but they'll come up with all some kinds of legitimate sounding ones but then also, eventually, if they have to keep making more and more excuses, they'll get to the ones that are clearly bogus, not based on reality. The lazy person will lie in order to get out of work. And I would just say, 26 years of having students hand papers in, you, I wish I would have started in year one and made a book out of it. Unbelievable, unbelievable things I've heard about why the paper isn't being handed in that day. Unbelievable. Many of them around technology, by the way. Uh, the days of typewriters were easier. They had their issues too. But a lazy person will work harder to come up with excuses than to do the job. Beg. The lazy person has managed to convince himself or herself of acts of and facts that are completely non-existent. And the longer they go in filling their mind with that kind of thing... They have imaginary reasons for their inactivity, and these imaginary reasons finally convince them of the fact that they can rationalize the fact that they don't get up. Then a couple of final ones, and take you now to Proverbs 26. You might want to turn there in your Bibles just to visually see it. There's four back to back to back, and we may be in a section of Proverbs which are not Proverbs written by Solomon, but perhaps by others. We don't really know. Hezekiah's men put these together. It seems like an addendum to the first 25 chapters. So we're in that section where there's a little more clustering of thoughts. And in verses 20, uh, 13 through 16, we have four Proverbs in a row. Now, we've already talked about two of them, verse 13 and verse 15. So we're just going to do the other ones. But all of these are really particularly sad conditions of a lazy individual. First of all, a word picture. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Meaning there may be activity, but it's just back and forth without any real progress. Beg again. He doesn't merely enjoy his bed. He's stuck to it. He absolutely loves it. He makes movement, but no progress. Where you found him at 7 in the morning, you can find him later at 11 and perhaps at 3 in the afternoon. He never actually refuses to do anything. He just puts it off bit by bit. He deceives himself into thinking that he will get around to it. But by minutes, small increments of time, by minutes and by inches, this individual allows opportunity just to slip away. And then verse 16, perhaps most condemning of all, 
the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. In order to be lazy for an extended period of time through all kinds of exhortations to not be and all kinds of consequences you suffer, the ironic thing is that lazy people still see themselves as the wiser ones. They're smarter than those fools who just go to work every day. They know better, they think, than everyone. Even seven really sound, wise, solid guys. Salvaggio. Because of pride, the lazy person tends to regard others as buffoons and fools, especially bosses, employers, teachers, parents, and any other authority figure. Beg. The final tragedy of this individual is that he is proud in his own self-assessment. In other words, he regards himself as something of a genius. He scorns his friends who are working hard. He believes himself to have found the key to learning without any inconvenient exertion. He's got a blind spot here. He's no idea that he's lazy. And then a couple that don't mention sluggard, but perhaps fit within the dynamic of working. Proverbs 14, 23. In all toil, there is profit. And toil is the word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes particularly over and over and over and over and over and over to describe what working here on earth is like. But in all that toil, there is profit. But mere talk, plans without action, tends only toward poverty. And Proverbs 18.9, another pretty gripping one. Whoever is slack, half-hearted in his effort, sloppy, careless, inconsiderate, is a brother is in the same camp as he who destroys. God's trying to get us to see the damaging effect of laziness wherever it is taking place in a home, in a workplace, in a church, wherever it might be. Now, I didn't take time because I was consumed with this trying to get those down, but throughout all of this, let me just verbally tell you, here's what we were told about the wise, often in the same proverb as the sluggard. The wise ant will diligently prepare bread when it's time and gather food when it's time. A wise son will gather in the summer. The wise works his land, fulfills his job's necessities so that he will have plenty at harvest. The wise and diligent are most often promoted and made leaders. The wise and diligent will get precious wealth. The souls of the wise and diligent are richly supplied. The path of life for the wise, upright, and diligent worker is a level highway. And the wise and diligent see the plans they make lead to abundance. I'll include all of those in Tuesday's email. As we move toward a closing, we got a long way to go. Hang in there. I'm sorry we're going again, but here we are. How does the new, first of all, how does the New Testament reiterate what Proverbs says? Does Proverbs say one thing and then the New Testament totally radically overthrows that? But we'll see that the New Testament actually gives us even greater motivation for the warnings of Proverbs and needing to be hard workers. So Colossians 3, 22 to 25, bond servants obey, and this is those either who are indentured servants or slaves, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, your bosses, your employers. Not by way of eye service, not just when they're watching you, not just to be a people pleaser, not just so you get those compliments, but genuinely from the very core of your heart with sincerity. And now notice, what does Proverbs tell us is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing the Lord. You know what? When you read that, me included, you often skip that little phrase. You get to all the other stuff. But please notice in there, the fear of the Lord is huge in the area of work. Now, whatever you do, work and otherwise, work heartily. There's one of the descriptions. With all of your heart, wholeheartedly, enthusiastically. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ and then is added by God, through Paul, a pretty s strong warning. 
the wrongdoer about any of these things. And this has come out of a section which has said, children obey your parents, wives submit to your husbands, husbands do not love your wives and do not be harsh with your children and provoke them. And then bond servants obey in everything. Here's the conclusion. The wrongdoer in any of these categories will be paid back. There's Galatians 6.8. You will reap what you sow in any of these ways. For the wrong he has done, and God will not show partiality. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you're doing, eating and drinking are the simple things, but whatever it is, do it all for the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 3, and Chad read from this uh, the Sunday that he preached as well. It's good for us to hear again. Verses 6 to 12, Paul writing, We command you, brothers, or church, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition, and the tradition is the teaching about work that you received from us. Now he gives their example. And, and the point is, apostles are not to be pampered. Apostles don't get special treatment. Apostles don't live above and make everybody else underneath them work. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, make sure believers understand that if they don't work, they don't have an entitlement to food, neither from the church nor from the government to provide for them. And then he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. That's a shameful thing he's saying. You're not busy at work, you're busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Ephesians 4.28 from the message three Sundays ago. Romans 12, 11. Next slide if we could. Do not be slothful in zeal or don't be sluggish. There's that same idea. But be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. And I put Jesus' parable of the talents up there from Matthew 25 for this thought. And I hope it's not a heretical. So I've always thought that the servant with the one talent Buried his talent because it was what he said. Because he feared the harsh master and the accountability and he wanted to make sure he didn't lose that. But the thought came to me this week, maybe that was a lie. Maybe he buried it because he was too lazy to go out and invest it. Sometimes we think we're the one who gets the one talent. Oh, everybody has more ability. Everybody gets this kind of job and this kind of great thing and these kind of talents and abilities. And here's little old me. So we don't give our best effort. We don't make the most. We just got our little one talent. We're just going to hold that rather than invest it and make the most. So I think God's point in that is make the most no matter what he has given you, whatever gifts he has given you, put them to work so that when he returns, you have much to show him for what he has given to you and entrusted to you. Very briefly, very briefly. Ah! Maybe not. We'll skip it. It's about workaholics because we may have more of those in our body than we do sluggards and lazy people. And God speaks a little bit to that, but that's for another message sometime. I have no idea when. Concluding thoughts, trying to bring it back to God, the gospel, and all of that. Let me make three quick, try to be quick points. Number one, we are to work like ants, if you want to use the illustration from Proverbs 6, because that's how we, three things, image God, obey God, and glorify God as our creator. So number one, our sub-point under that, how do we image God by working? Genesis 1 and 2 is just a reminder that God worked himself to create the universe in six days. And then it might shock you. Did you know there's all kinds of stuff about creation in Proverbs 8, 21 to 31? Look at that. Now or sometime. It's really cool. But at the end of it all, and it's a description of Jesus joining God in creation and the delight exhilaration that they had. And here's how it ends in verse 30. Then I, wisdom, Jesus, was beside him, the Father, 
like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. That's how the Godhead looks at work. It is delightful. It's cool. It's amazing. It's good, as God would say. So much of our culture sees work as drudgery, but we must not. We have a whole different way of looking at it from our God. Secondly, how do we obey God? By working. I think this is going to be more obvious, but Genesis 2, that God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he told them to work the garden. Exodus 20, 19, the one that Alistair Begg referred to, the fourth commandment is that six days you shall work, that it was a huge principal part of what God wanted Israel to do. God could have created a world which involved no work, but while it was in its most pristine perfection, he commanded Adam and Eve to work and that they were going to enjoy fellowship with him, not just sipping Coronas on a beach in the Mediterranean, but working the garden, fellowshipping with him over it, and it would be a delight. Now we know the fall wrecked that, and the curse brought all kinds of thorns and all kinds of hindrance and all kinds of things, but it did not alter God's first plan one bit that every created being that he makes works like he does. David Prince, the lazy image bearer, is living in rebellion to his or her creator. And then third, how do we glorify God by working? 1 Corinthians 10 is a repeat of what we saw earlier, that whatever we're doing, we are to do all for the glory of God. Keith Welton, God is at work in you as much on Monday morning as he is at work in your Sunday morning. You just need to see it. At 11.44 tomorrow morning, you should be worshiping God as much as you are now, if not even more. And Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And then we come back and repeat and do it again. Rest and renew and refresh and go out. I'm going to skip all that. Why you work, we say this is for you, God. You are my owner. You are my master. You are my creator. You are my Lord. I don't care what human boss and what human company and what human whatever you put me in. I pray that what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and why I'm doing it is pleasing to you. That it reflects you to all who see my work or are impacted by my work. Secondly, how do we work or why do we work? We work because that's how we imitate and serve our Redeemer. So it's how we image, obey, and glorify our Creator. It's how we imitate and serve our Redeemer. First of all, how do we imitate Jesus by working? Well, the four Gospels are filled with Jesus working. That's what composed his life. And think about this, if you would. He could have chosen to be born into luxury in which he never would have had to work one day of his life. And many people would think that would be the way I'd do it if I had that choice. He chose to come in, and for more years than he did ministry and miracles, he worked as a carpenter. He just worked. He did the grind. And I love the fact that we got about a half dozen carpenters, men who work with wood in here. Uh, that's just cool. But all the way through, from everything that he was doing, Jesus was talking all the time about the Father's work and about him working. His work, 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 work. It's his picture, his illustration, his way of describing what he was doing all the way through. My father is working, he said in John 5, until now, and now I'm working. John 17 in his prayer. Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. If you want to know how to glorify God, accomplish the work that he gave you to do. And we know Eric Little says when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. All of us should say, when we work, we feel God's pleasure. We feel Christ's pleasure. Do you need motivation to work? Fix your eyes every day on Jesus. He's your boss. He's the one who did incredible work for you. Look at all that Jesus has done in working. Worship him for it, and then get to work for him. Because you don't have to work for your salvation. He finished that. Secondly, under that, how do we serve Jesus by working? Colossians 3, let's go back to that. 
Whatever you do, work heartily. That's one way we serve Jesus. He just wants to see wholehearted working and using of all the gifts that he's given us, all of our body, all of our mind, everything. And we're doing it as if we're for the Lord, block out the man, the employer, the humans that we get so caught up and grumble against and focus on just, this is for you, Lord. I'm working for you. I'm creating for you. I'm selling. I'm buying. I'm working. I'm crafting a servant. I'm changing a diaper. This is for you. You're serving the Lord Christ. So Romans 11, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent. Serve the Lord. David Prince, I crammed it up there. Hope you can read it. For the believer, there is no such thing as secular work. Every task is to be sacred for the one who is united by faith to Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. Housework, building, teaching, preaching, all have the same responsibility to be done for human flourishing to the glory of God. The apex of the original dominion mandate is the work of the church in fulfilling the Great Commission. Therefore, all work for the Christian is tethered to pointing others to Christ. The Christian ought to be the hardest, most diligent worker. We must reframe our thinking about work in light of the gospel. Laziness is not only rebellion against the creator, it's also rebellion against the redeemer. Working hard is not only fulfilling the purposes for which we are created, it's fulfilling the purposes for which we've been saved. And then finally, we work hard not primarily for temporal, earthly benefits, but for the eternal rewards and game. In the middle of Colossians, that section in Colossians 3 is this line. No, keep in mind, remember every single day when you go to work that it's from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance of your reward. Who cares what you're getting paid? Who cares what anybody notices or thinks about it if you're, if you're working honestly, heartily for the Lord? know that you will receive phenomenal, phenomenal, incomprehensible reward. That's, that's the best paycheck of all. Here's the way one person put it. If, and this is the American system, but if you worked 50 hours a week, that's a lot for some people, uh, got two weeks off and worked for 40 years, you put in 100,000 hours. So what are you going to do with 100,000 hours? Do you know that that is God's opportunity for you to invest every one of those hours for his glory, for his purposes, and he will give you a reward that is beyond anything you have ever seen here on earth and can even comprehend in your wildest dreams. God loves workers. Father, thank you for Proverbs. Thank you for all the scary warnings about laziness and how you view it. And I pray, Lord, that you will use not only that, but also the picture of you working of your son working for our salvation that would just move us in every area. God, help us not only where we love to work, help us where it's hard. Help us where there's thorns and thistles and things that get in our way and make it difficult or our spirit isn't in it. Please continue to do that surgery and that transforming work in us, Lord, that we would work what you want, how you want, and why you want for your glory. We pray in Jesus' precious name and blood. Amen.